So we have been going through Hosea pretty quickly. This is just an eight-week study on this, on this book. We certainly could spend lots of time here in unpacking and, and uh, unpacking the text, but we're given eight weeks here so we don't spend too long. And so as we cover through the, through the uh, book of Hosea, we're now in our fourth week, <clears throat> and we're in chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 4 this morning. Some of this stuff on you got earlier. Hosea chapter 6. This past Wednesday, when I, was, uh, when I left the house, I was on my way here. Um, usually I, I leave a little earlier and I, I go study somewhere else, but I ended up staying at, the ho- at home. And at about 6 o'clock is when I left, and, and I turned the radio on, and I was listening to the radio, and some news came on. And the story that, that got me thinking, um, and, and maybe you all too over this past weekend, um, was the announcement of, of the Powerball, right? I, I don't play it. I, I don't buy the tickets or anything like that. Um, but that announcement came up, and, and, you know, it only comes on the news or the radio when it's something big. And, and so it was somewhere around $400 million, uh, a, a number that, you, you know, I, I can hardly fathom, you know, couldn't, could not, uh, couldn't imagine. Um, and, and I'm guessing that the drawing was last night, and I didn't win. I didn't play. Uh, I mean, maybe you didn't win, or you're just not saying it. Uh, but, but last night was a drawing. I don't, I don't know who wins and who, who knows if there's any winners. It always goes up if there's not a, if there's not a winner. Um, I don't play the lottery, but, but that didn't stop me in, in my mind while I was driving with the thought, Ben, what if you won that money? What would you do with $400 million? That's an easy question, right? You can, start, you can just start listing off all the things. And, and, and I, in my mind, I started thinking about all the, all the things that kind of money could change in my life. All the, all the problems it could solve. All the issues that can go away. And, including them, and then for other people that I know. Right? All the things that I could do for them, paying off debts and mortgages and, 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 and help people and all these things flooded my mind. And I know I'm not the only one, right? I know I'm not the only one. I can't tell you the reasons why people play the lottery. I, I can't. I can't tell you all the different things, the, the effects of gambling, the addictions, whatever it may, may be. But I can tell you that in that moment... In that moment of fantasy, as I'm driving he, to, here to meet and to study, in that, in, in that moment, that was enough to make me think, just go buy a ticket. And then you can keep those thoughts for the rest of the week until Saturday night and you lose, right? Because that's generally how it goes, right? What would it hurt? And I don't even know what they cost. They dollar, two dollars, I don't know what they cost. What would, it, what, would, what, would it, what would you lose? A couple bucks? What are the odds, right? I mean, the odds are like 300 million to one. Now, the point here in me bringing this up is, is not for us to deal with the, the ethics of should we uh, participate in the lottery or not. We can talk about that in, a, in an, another, uh, another time. But, but the idea is the, the delusion, in a sense, the, the fantasy that came up in my mind with just that one little thought what you could do with that kind of money. If only I could win all the things that I could do, the places I could go, the people that I could help. 
right? Only the good things, right, that hit your mind in those, in those moments. But it was all a delusion, right? It's all a delusion. Odds are 300 million to one. I don't know how they really come up with that statistic, except for maybe past tickets that are bought or something like that. Um, but 300 million to one, and then plus I'm, I'm more like a kajillion to one because I don't even buy the tickets. So you, you have no chance of winning at that point, right? It's make-believe. It's a, it's a delusion. And, and this morning, as we, we, we look at our text, and as we have been seeing throughout Hosea, is sin pervasive in the nation of Israel? Running rampant throughout Israel, and God using his prophet Hosea to show a, uh, not only to prophesy, but also to be a living parable of God's love toward his people to buy such a wicked people, redeem such a wicked people such as Israel. Israel is Gomer. Jesus is Hosea. We are Israel. And so throughout this book and what we've been talking about and what we'll see highlighted mostly in in rest of 6, 7, and 8 is we see sin and the effects of sin and the delusion of sin, the, the fantasy of, of sin. It's always trying to convince us, as it is try, was trying to do with Israel, and even from Genesis chapter 3, it's always trying to convince us to believe something that's the exact opposite of what is right and what is good. Despite the consequences despite the outcomes, despite the odds. And so let's turn to Hosea chapter 6. And in, in, in Hosea chapter 6, we're, we're, we're not going to be flattered, as, as Hosea is not doing. It's not flattering us. It's not going to build us up into believing something that's not true about ourselves. It's not going to build you up into believing something that's not true about God. But what these chapters are going to do is they are going to expose the nature of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, its delusion of, of its promises of that it will satisfy you, that it will give you joy. In fact, I titled this sermon, The Anatomy of Sin. Because it, it pulls back the sheet of the cadaver of sin as we look at Israel and says, this is what went wrong and shows us how sin works. It shows us how it works so that we can look at this, we can see what, what went wrong and that we then can be equipped on how sin works and how sin promises such lies and we believe those lies. And so that my hope this morning that is, is that when God he pulls back the curtain of, of sin and, and pulls the mask off of, of Israel and their sin, that our eyes would be open to, to sin's devices, its destructions, and to its ultimate demise. And so, in Hosea, they're in sin, as uh, Israel is, caught in spiritual adultery, Unfaithfulness. We saw this last week in chapter four. The, the three accusations, right, against them. They have. They are. They are. Uh, uh, they should have loved the Lord and steadfast love. They have been unfaithful to the Lord, and their failure to acknowledge the Lord or to 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 know God. And see, Israel is the picture of of us. Israel is the picture of 
all humanity so we can learn from them. We can learn from, from, from their sin because there's not much different between them and us. The same nature that existed in them exists in, in us. And what we see throughout the book of Hosea, and what we've been saying, been saying week after week, is God does not sweep sin under the rug like we do. He doesn't treat it tritely. He doesn't belittle it. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't, he doesn't ignore it. He, he, he can't. He is holy. And He is just. And He is loving. And so when He addresses the sin of Israel, it is for their good and for His glory. So here's my definition of sin. So we can kind of be on the same picture. And when I say my definition, I'm actually mean Wayne Grudem's definition of sin. Sin is anything that fails to conform to the moral law of God. Let me repeat that. Sin is anything that fails to conform to the moral law of God in act, in attitude, or in nature. So sin is the failure to conform to God's law, His moral law, in our actions, in our attitudes, and also in our nature. So as we talk about sin today, I want you to understand that sin is, is, is not just something we do. It, it is something that we do, but that's not just it. Sin is not just something that we do, but first, sin is something that we are. Sin is something that we are. We are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we, are, we sin because we are sinners. The action of, of sin is due because we are sinners. By our very nature, we are born in a nature of sinfulness. And it's who we are. We, we talked about this in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And I think it's verse 3. It says, whereby nature we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our nature is corrupt, and then we have inherited from our father, Adam. We see that in, in I think, uh, chapter 6, verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. You see that there. points back. It's just not their failures in their culture, but it's a failure in their nature from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3. And so it's pointed out to us. So sin isn't something that just happens to us. It's not, it's, not a, it's not an accident. Sin is something that we are. It's, it's who we are. It's part of our nature. Sin is what we are willing to choose to, to rather to gratify our flesh than it is than rather to glorify God. We want to reward that definition. And we do all that because we are sinners. By nature, we are sinners. Now, now I want to make another distinction before we move forward. There's a, there's a difference in regard to the sin in a, of a believer and the sin of an unbeliever. So let's talk about the believer first. If you are a, if you are a Christian, then, then this bondage that you once had in, our, in your, your nature, a child of wrath that you, in, you inherited from Adam, if you are in Christ... 
through the power of the, the cross, that, that nature, that bond, that slavery has been, has been broken. Has been broken. Before, your, your only free will was to freely choose sin. No matter what you did. Whether you were trying to do good, you were in sin. Romans 14.23 says, for whatever, who, for whatever anyone does that does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever is done that not, that's not, does not proceed from faith is sin. But now in Christ, we are truly free. No longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to righteousness. But there's a rub. We get it because there's still this, there's still this sin flesh, right? That's, that's still there, that we're still sort of in, in, embodying and we still feel the temptation to sin and to give in to sin and to do sinful things and to think sinful thoughts. Our flesh is still at war with us. That's why we talked about back in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are to put off the flesh and put on Christ. Like, like taking off clothes taking off that old self every morning and put on Christ because He is our new identity. So as we go through this, and, and, and so I, just to talk about the, the, the unbeliever though, I told you one, first uh, believer, unbeliever, all that's not true for them. They're still in bondage to, to sin. They're still in, enslaved to the, to the flesh and to, to their desires. And even though they may still do good things, right? what we might consider that's a good thing, they are still in sin. They're still in bondage to sin and their sinful rebellion against God. So as we look at our passage this morning, my, my prayer throughout this week, my prayer this morning is that God will open our eyes to sin and its deceitfulness. Like I said, kind of pulling that sheet back to let us see sin as it really is. Let's look at Hosea chapter 6, verse 4. I'm going to read bigger chunks this morning, so stick with me. Starting in verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes, away, that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by my prophets. I have slain them by, their, by the words of my mouth and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests bands together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed in the evil deeds of Samaria. 
for they deal faith falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil they have made the king glad and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our kings, the prince became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a fire. All of them are like a hot oven, and they devour their rulers. All the kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him. He knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens, and I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves and rebel against me. Although I have trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes fall away, shall fall by the sword, because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be the derision in the land of Egypt. Amen. Throughout chapter 6 and chapter 7, we're given metaphors to describe uh, a greater reality. And these greater realities is that is the, the, the sin of the people, the sin of, of, of Israel. And so these metaphors are going to help us make a, make a, a, a connection of, of not only the deceitfulness of sin, but also its, its consequences and, and what sin looks like in, in the people. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to walk through these, through, these, uh, through these metaphors before we get to chapter 8 because it's going to build up in chapter 8 the, the delusion and the fantasy that, that sin does for us or that sin presents to us. And so let's look, how, look at these sins that there's, as they're exposed. The first one is, is seen in verses 4 through 6 in chapter 6 is this, is that Israel is like a morning mist. You see that there? They're like a, like a morning cloud. Like their love is like a morning cloud. Now, now we, we think of uh, you know, the beautiful mornings. Well, that sounds great. That love is beautiful and, 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 and wonderful. But, but what he is referring to is that their love actually is shallow. It's, it's not lasting. So that morning cloud is, is like the morning, the morning dew. 
right? In these days, we've seen some morning dew. I think the last two days, I've really noticed it. And it seems to last a little bit longer here. But can you imagine how long the, the morning dew and the morning mist last in the Middle East? Not long at all. It's, it's, it's gone quickly. So here's how their, their, their love is being shown or being brought to them. Their, their sin of, of shallow love is being shown that it is weak. It does not last. It's ineffectual. It's, it's not real love. It's not steadfast, as chapter 4, verse 1 says. All that they did... All that they did in, in, in wanting to turn back to the, to the Lord, we kind of see that in verses 1 through 3. Maybe they, maybe they might have turned a little bit, and maybe by their words that they, they said, yes, we'll, we'll return to the Lord. And maybe they went back to the, the temple and started sacrificing once again. But all that they did, even in the renewal of their religious activities and duties, were still nothing. They were still shown as nothing and shallow and false because they failed the greater weight of the law, and that is love and acknowledgement of God. So here's their first exposure of sin in this first uh, metaphor, is that, is that it is shallow love. The second one is they're like, a, they're like a overheated oven. Like an overheated oven and you can see in chapter 6, verse 7 through 7 through 7, chapter 7 through 7, sorry. They're like an overheated oven. God's people and the kings are like an overheated oven. You see that in verse 4, chapter 7. As it were, they were giving into their sin so much that it became like a fire that burnt inside. And as it burnt more and more, they, they desired it more and more. The more we sin, the more we, we give in to temptation, the more our, our flesh desires it more. There's this, there's this burning that, that takes place in our soul. We, wanna, we want it more. We, we yearn for it more because we think it's going to gratify us and, and we burn more and we lust more for that, for that sin. And look what, the, look what the end result is there in verse 7. The result is, is that overheated oven does what? What does any overheated oven do? It bursts into flames. It consumes them. It becomes their, their end. Sin feeds more sin. Giving in to temptation fuels the, or the desires to be tempted and to, and to light and to joy more of the experience of having a, a momentary gratifi uh, gratification or the, the pleasures of, of sin. We see how sin burns and it will consume. The third metaphor, Israel is like a, like a half-baked cake. You see that in verse 8. Like a half-baked cake. Uh, of course, uh, we, we rarely see half-baked cakes anymore because we have, we have ovens that, that cook kind of indirectly and the heat goes around. And yet their fires were, were real of a, a direct heat, right? And so if they didn't take the cakes while it was at a right time and flip it over, you would only have half of the cake cooked and the other half would still just be dough. So what I thought of is I thought of, you know, the, the, the pancake that's not cooked all the way. You ever, you ever had a pancake that wasn't cooked all the way? looks great on the outside because, you know, they, they took it off just in time because it looks really good on the outside. And, and, and then when you, you cut into the middle of it, you know, it just kind of like bleeds, right? You like the, I made a sound, and I didn't mean to, but I did. It just kind of like comes out. This is Israel. 
a half-baked cake. Looks good on the outside, but as soon as you cut into it, nothing but nothing but batter. They looked good on the outside. In some ways, Israel still resembled a a holy nation. They still had history. They still had their tradition. They still had names given to each other like Israelites would do. They had buildings that resembled God and would be there for their worship. They had rituals. They had traditions. They They had all these things. But in their inside, there was rotten. They were still like a pagan nation. They were neither cold nor hot like the church of Laodicea. Lukewarm, half-cooked. But that was not to be their purpose. Israel was was to be a people that was set apart as a holy nation, to be distinct from all other nations so that God could display His holiness in that nation. He could display his his perfect patience and and holiness in them. We see how how sin can make us live this this half-life of being halfway in and halfway out. Jesus tells us that we are to be salty. And if we're not salty, if we're tasteless, then we'll be spit out. And this idea of saltiness and distinctiveness is not a popular one. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a cool idea. It's not even how to build a church. It's not how to grow a church. But we are to be salty. We are to be fully cooked, not half-baked like Israel. Fourth, Metaphor is Israel is like a confused old man. You see that in verses 9 and 10. See that there? Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, I mean age, and yet he knows it not. You know what that means? I mean, it's an old man that's confused. He's old, and yet he thinks he's a teenager. That's confusion. That's, that's confusion, right? And, and uh, I mean, we've, we've seen people like that, right? I have. It's kind of weird. It's kind of awkward. It's confusing. And this was Israel. They were confused. They believed them to be something, that they were something, but they weren't. They believed that they were this, this great nation, that God would always protect, that God would always be for, and always care for them, no matter what they do. They were confused. They were confused. They thought they were powerful. And the confusion comes because that they were, as we talked about earlier, the confusion of this half-baked cake. They're not holy. They're not living according to the purposes that God has set for them. And this is what sin does. Sin causes us to be confused. It, because it, 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 it shows us to, to believe a, a certain reality that's not even true. It says that if you do this, if you get angry, then you're going to be satisfied. You're going to feel better about yourself. 
Or if you give into this, this lust, then your flesh will be gratified and you'll want it no more. You'll be good. And so we believe these lies, we believe these, these realities that are totally fake and totally false, and it leads us into an area like a confused old man. Believing something about it, ourselves, that's wrong. It's not true. Israel also is like a senseless bird. Like a senseless bird. Like a, like a bird that flies and floats all over the place and never settles down. You see that in verses 11 through 13. They never commit. They're silly, without sense. Israel, as we've talked about, they, they, they turn from, to, to other nations for help. First they go to, to Egypt. We've got, we got Assyria coming. Let's go to Egypt for help. And then Egypt proves to be a loser because Assyria beats them down. And so they go, well, what are we going to do now? Well, let's turn to Assyria and we'll pay them so that they will be nice to us. And all the while, here is God saying, I am your God. I am your protector and you've completely rejected me. And see, this is what sin does. This is what sin does. It makes us like a senseless bird finding our security in false places. And all it does, once again, it brings a false sense of security. What are we trusting in? What are you trusting in? Your retirement? Your job? I know two people this week that lost their jobs. Trusting in your family? Is that our security? Or is it founded in the Lord? Because that is where we will find rest. And I love this, what, what um, Augustine prayed once. He said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Our hearts are restless. We don't want a false sense of security in, this, in worldly things. Those things are cheap idols, cheap saviors. Number six, they're like a preoccupied prayer. See that in verse 14? This is pretty much like the prayer of the hypocrite. You see, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and, and wine, and they gash themselves. They rebel against me. You know what this verse sounds like to me? It sounds like a, like a, like a, a, a child throwing a tantrum. Right? Like, so a child that's not getting what they want, so you know you can't give in to them, right? You give in to them, man, that's the end. And, and so you don't give in to them, and eventually they, it escalates, and you're like, just go to your room, go sit on your bed until you calm down, and they're still just throwing a tantrum, throwing a fit, screaming and yelling and yelling, but I want this too! And they're hitting themselves on the ground, or whatever it may be. That's what that sounds like. This is the, the preoccupied prayer of, of Israel. They cry out to God. But what they're really not interested, just like the kid throwing the tantrum, is, is they're not really interested in God. They're not really interested in the parent, the husband, right, as we've been talking about in this, this metaphor in, in Hosea. But what they're really interested in is in God's stuff. They just want what God can give them, right? The, the, the wine, the grain. The wine and the grain. And this is human nature. This is such human nature. In John chapter 6, 
In John chapter 6, after Jesus fed everyone, fed the 5,000, fed everybody, Jesus made the proclamation, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. You want everlasting life? Come eat of, eat of me. And when people heard that, they said, you mean you're not going to give us any more bread? You're not going to feed me anymore? You're not going to feed my, feed my flesh anymore? They all left. They all left, they all, the, the crowns left Jesus. And they left Jesus because it is our sin nature to want what God can give us, but not want Him. You know, we gain so many blessings in the gospel. But at the center, the greatest blessing in the gospel is we get God. We get Him we, we get restored to Him and to knowing Him and to being able to love Him and see Him more clearly. We get Him. All the other stuff that we get, like eternal life and heaven, is, is all just part of the package. The greatest joy is we get God. And Israel lost that. They missed that. Sin blinds us to this. He's like a faulty bow. Israel's like a faulty bow. Like a, like a faulty bow, like a, like a bow and arrow that doesn't shoot straight. You ever went hunting and had a gun that didn't shoot straight? You're wasting your time. Had a bow that didn't shoot straight? You're wasting your time. Go to the fair, pick up the little rifles and shoot? You're wasting your time. They're designed to miss at the fair. They're designed to fa fail. And that's like what, we, like what he's saying in this metaphor, that they're like a, like, a, like a faulty bow that misses its target every time. Even with their greatest intentions, they miss. They miss the Lord. They miss righteousness. They miss holiness. You see that in verses 15 and 16. So there's, there's sin, right? We're things and the futility of sin and what sin can cause and, and, and do in us and what it wants us to believe, the lies that it wants us to be, believe, this shallow love, this, these burning fleshly desires, this half-cooked hypocrisy, confused reality, a false sense of security, fake worship, misguided motives, all of these. All of these is what, what sin is being exposed here in these chapters in Israel. And I think it's to be exposed also in us. The potential for these types of sin. How it entices us. How it deceives us. How it tempts us. But also what we saw throughout this and throughout Hosea mixed in is sin's end. What is the end result of sin? It's death. It's judgment. Separation from, from God. Let's look more to the second part of the anatomy of sin. And that is the delusion of sin. And we see in chapter 8 now the delusions that sin can bring, that can cause, and that we can believe. And we'll see some of these really parallel a lot with what we saw in 6 and in 7. These delusions. And as God unmasks them in, in, in chapter 8 of, of Israel, he's, I think he's unmasking these in, 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 in us so that we can see these, we can see them coming, so we don't, we don't believe these lies. 
and also the scary, the scary proposition of, of these delusions. The believe the fantasies that sin tries to sell us. It packages it up so pretty. It makes it look so sweet and, 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 and lovely and beautiful. Like it's, this is all you need. And yet what this shows us, it says, no, this is its effects. It's just, this is its effects. I didn't, I didn't grow up in the, in the years when um, you would see uh, cigarette ads on television. Um, I, I didn't see them, but I've seen a few, you know, on like other, other stuff. And, and what I remember seeing is they made, they made smoking look like it was awesome. And you were cool. And, and what, did, what did y'all used to say back in the day? The cat's meow, right? right? You're, you're, you're this. If you, and you're pretty. And you'll always look young. And you'll, you'll always be youthful. And, and, and you'll always be this way. And, and yet, what's the end result? The end result is death and hurt. And that's what we want to see. We want sin to be exposed. As much as it hurts for us to see, to see the reality of who we are, we, it hurts to see the truth. But I think God in His kindness and in His mercy is showing us. Let's walk through these. Let, let me read the passage and then we'll, we'll, we'll quickly walk through these. Chapter 8, verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips, one like a vulture, and he's, I think he's referring to Assyria here, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we Israel, we know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue them. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and their gold, they made idols for their destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. I mean, they made idols. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken into pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It's, it shall yield its flower, no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations. They are a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey, wandering alone. Ephraim as hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I soon will gather them up. And the king and the princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied the altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Where I write, where I to write to him my laws by ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it. But the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity. The punishment of their sins, they shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built places. And Judah has multiplied, fortified cities. So I will send fire upon the cities and it shall devour their strongholds. You see, they're in a sense, once again, 
the, that metaphor of, of that false sense of security and what they're trusting in, what will protect them. The first, first illusion is sin can make you think that you know God when you really don't. Sin can make us feel like we know God when we, when we really don't. It sounds offensive. That sounds offensive, but it's the Bible who, that, that shows us what it actually means to, to, to know God. It's the Word of God that defines for us what that actually means. And what we can see in these verses here, even, even Israel in verse 2 says, My God, we, Israel, we know, we, we know you, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter how many times they may, they may say the right things, they may do the right things. Their faithfulness and their behavior reject, or their unfaithfulness and their behavior rejected God. It says it spurns Him, rejects Him. It shows that they really don't know, they don't love God. It's all a delusion. It's all a delusion. Jesus refers to, to this in Matthew chapter 7. At the end of the, uh, the Sermon on, on the Mount, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And before that, there were people who were, who, who, who were prophesying, and they were doing miracles. And, and when they got to him, Jesus said, I de- Depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me. I never, never, never knew you. See, they, they assumed... They assumed wrongly that they, that, they, that they know God. That they know God. So let's, let's also get this straight too, that Jesus isn't playing some wicked game. He's not going to like pull the rug from out from underneath you at the end of days, right? He'd be like, oh, I tricked you. No, it, what it is is we, we trust in what we do. We're trusting in, in, in what, we, what we do or what, we, what we've learned or, or maybe by our association, we, we think that's knowing God. Maybe it's even the, the miracles and the prophecies. It's not what we do in the way that we should be building the evidence of, of, of knowing God. But it is by our intimacy, our, our closeness, our, our loving, our knowing Him, acknowledging Him, delighting in Him, treasuring Him. You see, the assurance we get from the Gospel is not through our works, but it is through, through Christ. It is through Christ. That is our, that is our confidence. That is our, our foundation. If you're trusting in only in your works and what you do or, or your traditions or your rituals, you cannot have any confidence. You can have no confidence. And that's the delusion of religious people. That's the delusion of, of religious people. They say, I know you, I served you, but the reality is they have been serving themselves. They've been serving a, a form of, of what they believe God is. Just like Israel. And when that happens, Jesus will say, I never knew you. First delusion. Second delusion. Sin can make you subtly reject God's sovereignty. And I'm quickly going to run this one. See it in verse 4. You see that they made kings, but not through him. They set up princes, but I, but I knew it not. Deuteronomy chapter 17 tells, tells us and tells, told them, 
that there was to be one king in Israel. There's to be one king in, in Israel that would be under the Lord, and that would be Christ. That was the only king that they were ever to have. But, but Israel's desires for, for a king to be like other nations was a rejection of God, was a rejection of, of God's lordship and kingship and God's sovereignty over them. Rejection of that. And in this small verse, it exposes so much how much Israel was stealing glory for themselves. And this is what sin does in deluding us and giving it, uh, or I was believing these delusions. And I think once again, Israel, just like so many times we can be guilty of, is they wanted a God who was all-powerful, but they didn't want a God who was sovereign. They didn't want a God who was, who was sovereign over them. But the truth is, the reality is, and what we see run throughout the Scripture, it is only in a sovereign God where we have a most powerful God that will then satisfy us. It is only where we will find deep satisfaction and deep joy is in resting in the sovereign hand, all-powerful hand of God. He is only all-powerful because He is sovereign. Don't reject it. Don't reject this. And sin can make us belittle that. Make us think that we're in control. Make us think that, that it's our will be done. We need to acknowledge the Lord and His sovereignty over our lives and depend upon Him and pray and ask the Lord to lead us, to guide us each and every day. And third delusion it can make us think that we're actually worshiping God when, when we're not. It's getting intense. We're getting intense. And we see this unmasked un, un for us in verses 4 through 6. This one's closely related to the first delusion. But this is Israel. They're guilty of, of, of just no worship and, and false worship. They were worshiping calves made of, made of gold. How ironic is that? We already kind of mentioned that earlier a couple weeks ago. That they would, they would make and create their own gods. Rejecting God. But remember back what we read in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 6. It says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Do you know Jesus quoted that verse two times in Matthew? That I require, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. That's, that's real worship. Religious duties without love to God is only an attempt to manipulate and to, to bribe Him. And it's a delusion. It's a delusion that we can, we can offer up our sacrifices and our praises to, to false idols and thinking that we're pleasing the Lord. Thinking that we're pleasing the Lord. This type of, this type of worship is appalling to God. It's appalling to Him, but how much it feels so appealing to us. Because it comforts us. Because it's creating a God that looks like me. It's creating a God that, that, that looks like me, and of course I want to worship that because I like me. We have to be careful. 
We have to always examine ourselves. The Second Corinthians tells us always examine ourselves to see where we are worshiping and always test ourselves. Where are we looking for our, for our hope? Are we believing the, the delusion? Are we really worshiping God? Or are we worshiping just our own ideas of God? Fourth delusion is this, and I think this is one of the biggest ones, is that sin can make us minimize sin and its consequences. We can minimize sin and its consequences. This is pervasive in our culture today. Nobody wants to take responsibility for anything. Everything is everyone else's, is everyone else's fault. We see verse 7 in chapter 8. It's like a proverbial language. Look at that. It's like, it's like you reap what you sow. You'll, you'll reap the wind, but what, you'll, or what, you'll, what you sow is the wind, but what you'll reap is the, is the whirlwind. And that's a little bit of a kick to it. Meaning, meaning there's one action, you may do this, but it'll lead to a much larger action, a much larger consequence. And, and things came straight to my mind as like texting and driving. How that small actions can lead to massive consequences that we never intended to have to pay. Or maybe it's a small thing like telling a lie. And we tell that lie because, because we want to avoid embarrassment. And we want to maintain a, a certain pretense about ourselves. We want to uh, avoid the embarrassment. And so then, then, we, then we have to kind of keep that rolling. We have to keep that ball rolling. So we tell more lies and greater lies. And then before we know it, there's like ten people involved in this whole thing. And eventually the whole thing comes shattering down like a, like a house of cards. We're exposed as, as we are. The consequences of the lie now are no longer a small, avoiding a uh, embarrassment with maybe one person, but now it's collateral damage everywhere. You may sow the wind, but you'll reap the whirlwind. Brothers and sisters, we, we must not believe the lie that our sin is just isolated. That there's no consequences to, to our actions and to our, to our sins. This is the delusion of, of Israel. We must not minimize it. We must not ignore it. We must not minimize it. God did not minimize sin. Remember we said God didn't sweep it under the, under the rug? He dealt with it. He is holy. He is not indifferent and passive towards sin as, as we are. He dealt with it. He sent His Son to die on the cross. How much more serious can He get about dealing with sin and the consequences of sin? Yet God is gracious and merciful. But just because He is gracious and merciful, let us not presume that there's no consequences for our sin and that we should treat sin lightly. And we have eyes to see sin and not dabble with it and play with it. It's not a cute puppy. It's a snake. It's a snake that can kill us. And the last one. Sin makes, can make us believe that our acts of self-righteousness can save us. We've seen this throughout Israel. We see it in the, the New Testament that religion can save us. It's a delusion that is as common today as it was back in Hosea's day. Religious people still think that they can win 
God's approval through their religious performance, through their morality, in their external uh, respectability. And this is a delusion. And, and, And this is a delusion. It's a, it's a creating of our own religion, that we are our own craftsmen of making our own idols of ourselves. And, and we, we do it in more subtle ways than, 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 than like a Pharisee would do. We, we do it in, 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 in subtle ways of comparing. The Pharisee did the compare. Remember in Luke chapter 18, the prayer of the Pharisee, at least I'm not like that guy. And we do that. That's a, that's a, that's a self-righteous uh, idea, thought of ourselves. Well, at least I'm not like them. At least I'm, I'm not like, like, like that guy. And it makes us feel better for our, of, of, our, of ourselves. You see, the self-righteous and the Pharisee, they, they always need someone that's worse than them. They always need someone that's, that's, that's worse than them. Right? Israel could always look like, at least we're not like the Assyrians, God. Or at least we're not like Egypt. They always need someone worse than them. And guess what? We can always find someone that's worse than us, right? We always can find someone to compare ourselves. We can always do that. You see, our own self-righteousness, we will never find satisfaction there. We'll never find joy there. And most importantly, we'll never find justification The Pharisee that prayed that prayer in, in, in Luke chapter 18, the punchline was on him because it was the sinner who walked away justified, not the Pharisee. We cannot earn God's approval through our own self-righteousness. We cannot do that. And our self-righteousness is so easy to believe. We must always be exposing this sin of, of pride must always be exposing this, this self-righteousness and putting it to death by the, by the power of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. must always do that. One thing that we've been, we've been talking about is how that self-righteousness, we've seen it and we've see, we can see it in churches. One thing we've been talking about on Wednesday night is that with the right gospel, creates a, a, a right culture and that, that right culture is a culture of grace and, and love and truth and sacrifice and, and serving one another and honoring one another and loving one another. And self-righteousness in the church spurns at all that. But if we're, if we're conformed by this gospel, this gospel of, of, of grace, of how we're really saved, this is the kind of culture it can be built up in, in this body. Because it's a work of grace in each of us. You see the good news? The good news this morning is that the gospel of God's grace is unmasking these delusions and is unmasking sin's consequences and its, and its ends. And the gospel takes the, the, the foundation of all sin and it has completely undermined it. It's completely undermining it. It's not going to get to its full effect for those who are in Christ. 
Yes, we are sinners before a holy God. Yes, we are not okay. Yes, our good works can never outweigh our wrongdoings. But God in His grace has sent His Son and He takes His Son's righteousness and He credits it to us. All of our wrongdoings then are credited to Him. And as He hung on the cross in our place, we receive His righteousness. You see, the Bible in Hosea and other places exposes as we are. As Israel, as Gomer, as the adulterers, as the, the needy ones, as the sinful ones, as the ones that say, yes, I'm, there's a potential for me to believe in those lies, in those delusions. But it then is, is, it is in that sweet moment of, of, of that exposed, laid out bare before the Lord, it is in that exposed moment that we are clothed by the righteousness of Christ. And we are encouraged by His grace and we are secure in Him. We are then secure in Him. So we must put sin to death in our lives. To not take it, ser- not take it seriously anymore. To not believe it's, believe it's lies. A quote from a book, I want to end with this. John Owen, a quote from his famous work, A Mortification of Sin. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. I hope and pray that this this sermon, as long as it was, has been a reminder, and maybe even a sobering reminder of of, of the seriousness of sin. That we will take sin seriously, and we will fight sin, and we will learn how to fight sin how to put sin to death, how to take sin to the act, or take sin, take, to, take the acts to the root of sin in our hearts. Don't just treat the symptoms, but go right to the root of it. Figure out where it is in us, where it's holding its grip, that we will not befriend it, that sin will not be our friend, that we would put it to death, that we won't, we won't feed the flesh. We won't feed the flesh. And we would trust in the the work and the leading of the Holy Spirit as He guides us and builds up in us faith and gives us grace to repent and to fight sin and to confess sin and to continue to press on in this life to the glory of God and for our joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Lead us now as we respond to your glory, in Jesus' name.